There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Herman's Hermits performed live at the Birchmere in Alexandria, Virginia tomorrow night. I spoke with frontman Peter Noon about the band's role in the British invasion with hits like I'm Into Something Good and I'm Henry VIII Diane. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Um, what can we expect from the show? I, I assume we're going to hear all the great Herman's Hermits hits. Anything, anything new you've been working on? Well, we, we always do new stuff. We don't have a sort of set list. We, we just wing it based on the audience. That's a very good audience. I've played there many times. And it's an unusual audience because you can, make, you can communicate with them because they're kind of near to the stage. And it's a, it's a, kind of, it's a, it's a useful place for me to try new things. And I tell stories and I tell and I sing songs and sometimes the story leads to a song and somebody shouts out a song from like the first album that that we do. Um, you know, we, we've been around so long, we've got like 300 songs that we all know, that everybody in the band knows. And if you don't know it, you don't play along, you just sit the song out. Oh, yeah. And I know you have, you know, people at the Birchmere have seen you a bunch of times. So um, it's always good having you back. Well, uh, yeah, take me back to the beginning. I know you were, you know, born in, you know, in Lancashire, England in 47. What sort of stuff did you did you grow up listening to? Or I guess my question is, how, how did you get bit by the music bug to begin with? Well, you know, the music bug was in my family. It was, um, you know, like for every funeral, wedding, christening, baptism, marriage, uh, people would gather in a place in my grandmother's house and, and there was a room and she was the choir mistress at the local church. And my grandfather was the organ player at the local church. My father was a trombone player in a band. His brother was caught as a trumpet player in a band. And my Auntie Mary played Fats Waller songs on the piano. And most of it, we just played popular music. And in those days, popular music had Beatles, The Sound of Music, um, Mantovani, uh, Fats Waller, Little Richard. So everything was on the table in there, you know, and I was, I was a singer, you know, I was one of the people in the family who sang the song. So I learned lots of, you know, we'd do Ink Spots and Buddy Holly and uh, my father liked to play a bit of Woody Herman's Thundering Herd. And uh, Consequently, I was like Paul McCartney and everybody else who came from a musical family. We we were immersed in six thousand songs of different types. Yeah, you can. It's nice when you have all that sort of varied background to pull from. Well, so how did you actually form the group Herman's Hermits? Or I guess in the beginning it was called Herman and His Hermits, right? In in 1964? Ooh, how, how it, the it was a long time before that. We, we were all in bands when we were about 13. It just seemed to be 13 was the age of skiffle. 
And uh, everybody had a skiffle group. My grandmother was even in our group. She played the washboard. <laughs> and, um, you know, everybody, the, the songs were very easy. You know, they were, Lonnie Donegan had come along and it showed us all that we, if you knew three chords, you could play every kind of skiffle song known to man. And everybody had a band and, and nobody had any money. So it was just street kind of stuff. And um, that morphed. It, uh, that was a band called the Cyclones, which was a skiffle group that became the Heartbeats. And that, that became Pete Novak and the Heartbeats, which became Herman and the Hermits. And uh, then it became Herman's Hermits. But all of those bands played at the Cavern and the Oasis in Manchester on the way to becoming Herman's Hermits. We we morphed into Herman's Hermits, basically, from with with all the energy from all those different bands. So well, some people in those original bands didn't want to do it for a living, and and what what Herman's Hermits was was for me and four people who all believed that we had a future in the music business and that we could all quit our jobs. I quit school. I ju- I didn't quit school. I just stopped going, and. Um, you know, I'd already done all the work that they were doing. So so we that Herman's Hermits became this band that would we could play three times a day at the cabin because we, we didn't have a job. We could play anywhere we wanted to. And and Herman's Hermits always did more gigs than anybody else around and still do. For sure. Well, so how did you get actually get the, the moniker, the nickname Herman then? Why what you know, your, your name's Peter, but where did Herman come from? <laughs> You know, we, we were a Buddy Holly um, cover band, I guess. We only sang Buddy Holly songs. That We were called The Heartbeats, Pete Novak and The Heartbeats. And um, we were playing in a pub. And and I wore, when I did Buddy Holly, I wore horn, horn-rimmed glasses. I still got them. I still wear horn-rimmed glasses. But I used to put them on and go, all that Buddy Holly stuff. And the guy who owned the pub came over and said, what the bloody hell are you doing? And I said, are you stupid? It's Buddy Holly. He says, it's nothing like Buddy Holly. It's more like Herman from the Bullwinkle Show. And he meant Sherman from the Bullwinkle Show, but we laughed at it, and I became Herman. <laughs> and then he called the band the Bloody Hermits. You, what are you laughing at? You should be the Bloody Hermits. And we became Herman and the Bloody Hermits for a minute. And we had the, you know, like every group band, we we had our business cards printed, Herman and the Hermits, weddings, bar mitzvahs, anything, with my mother's phone number on it. My mom, my mother was the only person who had a phone in the band. And uh, from then it went on, you know, we suddenly got more and more, because we were, because we wanted to play, see, it didn't seem like work. We we played every night of the week. We we didn't really care about being paid and stuff like that. We just wanted to play, and um, and that was the key really that that we just wanted to play. We 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 were, you know, we came from family. My dad would have loved to have had a gig every night on the trombone, but he was an accountant by now. You know what I mean? So so we all we just went out to work and played. Sometimes for nothing, we, we we had to make a profit because we needed to put petrol in the van and stuff like that. So we needed to pay all the expenses. But we weren't. We were all living with our mums and dads or our grandparents or whatever, and there was there was no stress, financial stress. 
Wow. So then, you know, you're playing all those weddings, bar mitzvahs, living it with parents and grandparents, what have you. How, what was the big moment that changed everything? Like, how did you actually get, get signed to, to make a record? Well, in, in those days, I think what happened was you played around a new built a following. And then it became your turn to get signed. It just it was just the way it worked, you know. It went like the Hollies, and uh, and the Four Pennies, and Freddie and the Dreamers, and all these other bands around us were all getting signed. And then when Fontana and the Mindbenders got signed, and and bit by bit we 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 became signable, and we went for an audition in in London, and we got turned down for the first one and then we eventually got signed and uh, it was Mickey most who came to, uh, we were playing a, a club called the Beachcomber in Bolton and he came down and saw the band and signed us. You know, it was as simple as that really, you know, it was our turn. We were the most likely band in town to get signed. We, you, you know, you're next kind of thing. And a lot of people got signed and, and regretted it instantly because they got signed to the wrong label at the wrong time with the wrong producer. But we landed perfectly on our feet with, with Mickey Most, who became, you know, my best friend, the best man at my wedding, my daughter's godfather and my, you know, my friend. And we hung and, and he understood exactly what I was talking about when we talked about music. We both shared the same musical knowledge. So, you know, the Everly Brothers, the reverb on Walk Right Back, and he'd know, oh, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I said, well, could, can you, what, what drummer can play that? And he'd go, oh, yeah, Bobby Graham. Yeah, you had like a shared language. He almost yeah. finishing each other's sentences. That's amazing. Well, you made yeah. the most, you made the most of it with the, with the first, um, you know, your big breakout hit was something that, I mean, people still remember today that song, you know, something tells me I'm into something good. It was, a, it was a Carol King, Jerry Goffin written song, right? Yeah, you know, but we made it our own. We we took it and it was a girl's song, you know, and I rewrote the lyrics to be a boy, a boy's song without permission. And, um, you know, once it was a hit, everybody agreed that it was a very good idea. <laughs> well, tell me more about the, the writing that, you know, you, you just like what, what made you, you know, any good stories from, from the recording of that? Well, you know, we, 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 we'd, we'd always done that. You know, we used to do my boy lollipop at the cavern because nobody else would do my boy lollipop. It was a girl's song. And, and it just was odd. And we used to do Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. And we used to do Mother-in-Law by Bernie Cahill because, we, because I thought it was ironic that a 15-year-old boy would have a mother-in-law. And But the audience just liked the song. They didn't listen to any of the, 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 the general part of it. So, so we'd, we'd always just change songs to fit. And, and when I didn't know the words for a song, I would make them up. <laughs> I just make them up as I went along, you know, like, like we do walking with my angel, which was a Bobby V song. And I couldn't tell you what he said on the record, but I said, when this roving dance is command, which means nothing, but that's how it was. You know, I still do that. If I don't know where I am in the song, I just make up words. 
<laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I know uh, I'm into something good. It, it paid off changing it to the, the boys song, as you said, because uh, it went to number one in the UK. I think it even it dethroned, knocked off the kinks. You really got me and it, and it charted pretty high here in America, too. And after that, you were off to the races. I know you had. Tell me about your next hit single. I can't you hear my heartbeat. Uh, how did that one come together? You know, um, there was a see, England is a small country. It's a very small country. So everybody kind of knew each other. All the musicians, all the bands, you know, knew it, knew about each other and knew each other. So there was a great band called Carter Lewis and the Southerners. And they were called the Southerners because they're from the south of England. And they were a touring band and they had two guys in the band called John Carter and Ken Lewis. Or, yeah, Carter and Lewis. And they had this song that they thought would be a good idea. You know, it sounded like the perfect follow-up to I'm Into Something Good, if you know what I mean. And they got that song to us. We recorded it. You know, we used to just have fun in the studio. You know, it was always great fun. So, and, and on that record, you know, we got the song and we go in the studio and record it. And Mickey Most would run into the room and go, ha, on it. He'd make this funny noise. And... um that's part of the record, you know, and now the audience do that ha, when we get to that thing. So it, it, it came about because it was sent to Mickey Most for Herman's Hermits. People, songwriters in those days would say, oh, I got a great song. It'd be good for Herman's Hermits or it'd be good for the monkeys or it'd be good for the day. You know, you know what I mean? That's that's it was a period where songs would get sent to you and you'd go, holy guacam, look, look at this unbelievable song somebody sent for us to do. Let's record it tonight. And that's how we did it. And Mickey was very, Mickey was very um, interested in getting things done quickly and uh, capturing sort of moments. You know, uh, if the moment was good in the studio, it didn't matter if the if the if people had made mistakes on the record. And uh, you know, like House of the Rising Sun has a massive gaff in it, but nobody ever noticed it because the record is so brilliant. And uh, so we got like Wonderful World with Jimmy Page on guitar and the drummer, which is Bobby Graham, who's also the drummer on the Dave Clark Five. He, he, uh, Jimmy Page had cut the intro in half. So it, it used to go da 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 and Jimmy said, that's boring, let's just do it once. So we went da 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 don't know much about history. So, but Bobby Graham was fixing a hi-hat or something at the time and missed that that thing through his headset. And he he played the second intro. He played he he played the first four bars twice. And um, you can hear him catching up on the record, but it kind of adds to the energy. By the time we got to the bridge, you can tell he's into it. Oh, I got it now. He thought we were going to record it again, but we never recorded anything again. We always went with the first take because it had that kind of, that kind of high energy. And, you know, we got this take done and, and, and he, for a wonderful world. And Mickey said, okay, Jimmy, go and overdub, you know, play the overdub the guitar and Peter, you go and overdub the lead vocal. And that was it. And it was put, you know, we put records out like that. They weren't supposed to be perfect. They were supposed to be capturing moments. 
Well, that's cool. Thanks for sharing that. Now I want to go look up the song and try to listen for, you know, him catching up on the drums in the background. <laughs> um, yeah, so- you can you can definitely hear it. You know, any drummer goes, whoo, he's, he's not playing the same parts as everyone else. Uh, I'm looking forward to looking up that. Uh, cool. Well, tell me about um, the, another one you had, Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter. That one was that one was a huge hit, too, for you. Well, it, 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 it was we, what happened was we were making an album, our first album, and we had all these songs that we'd played live for 100 years. But some of them you couldn't record. You couldn't do like any Chuck Berry songs because other people had done them all and they'd done them better than us. Like the Beatles had done Roll Over Beethoven, the Stones had done Come On, uh, we did Memphis, but we, we didn't want it in the album because everyone was doing Chuck Berry songs. So, so we were looking for odd songs and we... Mrs. Brown came about when Keith Hopwood, the guitar player in Herman's Hermits, um, bought a Gretsch Country Gentleman guitar. And it was the Chet Atkins model, which had this little damper thing on it to make it, supposedly to make it sound like a banjo, but it actually sounds like a banjo with flattened strings. So we were messing around with this guitar and through the guitar, we created this song called Mrs. Brown, You Got a Lovely Daughter. And um, again, with made up words and stuff like that, you know, we didn't know. It just made up as it, as it went along. And uh, Mickey most recorded it against his will. He thought it was a load of old rubbish. He said, I'll, put it, I'll hide it on side two, track three. No one will ever listen that far into the record, you know, half jokingly. And, of course, it came out in America, and some disc jockey in Philadelphia played it for 24 hours. It had uh, 600,000 advance orders, and we we were convinced that it should be a single, but we knew it would ruin Herman's Hermit's reputation. And... Um, it got put. So it was. It was. The, it came in the charts at number seven or something, which is the highest record had ever come in the charts at the time. You know, but apart from the Beatles, who used to come in at number one. You know, and and it was just a, a, a big smash hit, which led us back into the studio to do a, a follow up to that, which was I'm Henry the Eighth AM, which was also cut in one take, and where Herman says second verse same as the first, he really means play that again, the same bit again. And uh, again, you know, it was created in a moment. You know, Barry Whitwam came up with that. The drummer came up with that brilliant drum feel. No one else can play it. And uh, Leck did his Chuck Berry thing all over it. And I harmonized it. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm glad you mentioned I'm Henry the Eighth. I am. That was another, you know, another number one hit for you all. Um, is is that is that one of the one of your favorites? Every time that you come out and play, did the does the audience? I mean, that's like the ultimate sing along. <laughs> Everybody like you know, it's kind of a punk song in a way, you know. So it's it's different from everything else we do in the show. I mean, it, it is like uh, you know the Ramones did a moment from it as well, even you know. So it's 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 that Herman's Hermit's punk thing. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, um, thanks for going through all those songs. Um, you know, but big big picture it for me in terms of you know the the in terms of your place in the whole British invasion. You know, everyone remembers the Beatles. Everyone remembers the Stones. Um, but uh, is it is it true that that 
I guess what was it in like 1965? Did, did Billboard magazine name Herman's Hermits the best act of '65 ahead of the Beatles? Was that is that true? They didn't say the best stuff. We sold more records than anybody else in in Billboard and Cashbox. We were the biggest selling act in America those for two years in a row. I think 1965 and 1966. So nobody. It was not a competition. We none of us were in a competition. We were all completely unique and different from each other. So. The idea that we sold more than the Beatles is just they just happened to have been making Abbey Road or something, you know what I mean? Or, or revolt, you know, it's ridiculous to we none of us competed with the Beatles, so you know, they were different from everybody else. Like the Stones weren't like the Beatles, and the Beatles weren't like the Who, and the Who weren't like the Stones and the Beatles, and Herman Summers weren't like anybody, we were totally unique, and. You know, our position in it is, in it is, who cares? If I can still sing these songs 60 years later or 70 years later, whatever comes next, it means that they were good songs. It doesn't matter who won, won what. And, yeah. and you know, we, if we'd have done it for money, we would have quit after the first year. You know, we never did it. it, it there's, a, there's a great interview um, in, a, in, a, in a, a, like a Honolulu press where he goes, Herman from Herman's Hermits met Elvis Presley, his all-time hero. And there's a picture of me and Elvis. And they said, Peter Noon, who is Herman of Herman's Hermits, is on a, met Elvis on his day off from a 360-day world tour. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in retrospect, looking back at it, I didn't realize I was on a 360-day tour. I was just working. And... That's what Herman's Hermits were. We were this hard-working band, and you know, hopefully, we became more and more entertaining as time went along. We were always entertaining at the Cavern, uh, and that's how we kept going. You know, we had these key places that we would play where people liked us and kept asking us to come back, and and that turned into a 360-day world tour. You know, we went to France, Belgium, Holland, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, Spain, Israel, uh, the Philippines, Hong Kong, Australia, New Zealand, the United States of America, Canada, England, Australia, England, France, Belgium, Holland, Germany. We just went round and round and round, and that's what we did, and that's who we are. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, actually, that's who I am. <laughs> when I use the we, it's the royal we. That's who I am. I just like to I like to sing and I like to do what I do. Yeah, let's we'll draw we'll draw the distinction between the the I and the we. Um just yeah, just to re- remind our listeners. So you I guess you left Herman's Hermits what in nineteen seventy one to do some solo stuff. Um and then and then today today you're touring with Herman's Hermit starring Peter Noon. Isn't there another outfit with Barry Whitlam, Herman's Hermit starring Barry? Like there's, there's a couple different. Yeah, but they, they right? only work in, in England in small places. Right. You're the, you're the big touring touring act. Well, yeah, you know, it's just one of those things that it's happened to. It's like, for example, in England, there's a band called the animals, which is just the drummer. And there's a band called Herman's Hermits with, which is just the drummer. And it's just because the English law did not protect trademarks like they do in America. And, it, it, you know, it's inconsequential because they play and they, they, they're an opening act, you know. And if I was in the band, we'd be, we'd be the headliner. 
Sure. Does that make sense, or does that sound pretentious? No, that makes sense. I mean, you're you are the okay. Herman. You are Herman. <laughs> you are you're the voice. You're and you're the headliner at the Birchmere. You're not opening for anybody. <laughs> um, exactly. And I and I. By the way, just to, just to say that the Birchmere is one of my favorite places to play because it's a small room, and you can see the audience. And I don't know if I'm going to be allowed to go out into the audience, but historically I have gone out into the audience just to say hello and look who the type of people and this whole family sitting at a table, which for her. You know, because we've we've had a thing in in. I went to this school that made me have a five-year plan, and I said I don't want a five-year plan. I want a one-week plan. <laughs> and uh, and then that turned into a five-year plan over my lifetime. And recently, like in the last five or six years, I have a ten-year plan. And it, the plan is this: ten more years. That's the only part of the plan. There's nothing else been set. And I say to my drummer, you think you can make it for another 10 more years? Yeah, 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 yeah. You think the Stones can make it for 10 more years? Nah, nah, nah. But we got 10 more years. So I go into the audience and I say 10 more years. And I look up. If there's young people there, they've got more chance of keeping up with us. (laughs) I love it. Well, here's to 10 more years and counting. Thank you. (laughs) It's a great great logo, isn't it? 10 more years. <laughs> it's sort of uh, living the dream stuff, isn't it? You really are living. I mean, you mentioned you met Elvis. I mean, come on. I mean, you've been living the dream. So. Yeah, I met all the people I wanted to meet, but I, I insisted, you see. I wanted to meet Jackie Wilson. I wanted to meet Marvin Gaye. I wanted to meet, you know, the ones who were still alive I met. Yeah. And you know what? Is it wild? Is it wild that there's there's probably other people that say the reverse? They say, wow, I've always wanted to meet Peter Noon. <laughs> yeah, you know, but you've got more opportunity to meet me because I'm I'm a pretty relaxed, easygoing kind of travel on planes and take the airport shuttle to get a rental car. You know, I, I learned from Chuck Berry, who wanted to be on his own to make all his decisions travel on his own. So I'm easy to me. I often sit next to the plane. And, 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 you know, when I met Elvis Presley, part of the discussion was he'd never had the, the same um, experiences as me, you know, only because he was from Tupelo, Mississippi. He was from a different character. But he'd never got on a plane and sat next to a complete stranger. Think about it. Wow. Everybody else in the world has done that at some time. You know, he went from being a country boy driving a truck to get in his own plane and stuff like that. He never got on a plane and sat next to a complete stranger like I do all the time. And people say, you know, are you that guy? And uh, the other day I was coming back on a plane from somewhere and the guy sitting next to me opened Wikipedia on on his phone and said, are you this guy? know that never happened to Elvis Presley or you know but it probably happened to Johnny Cash because Johnny Cash was also one of those people who was very free with he was accessible I think it's called so I have a very low um express uh, you know I have very low uh, expectations of what how people react to me wow that's a good point you're right Elvis sort of leapfrogged that whole period there he went from nobody yeah, to everything I, I stayed I mean, in that thing I, I had a bit of that where I you know, I was I was in my hotel room, and and I people were suggesting that I didn't go out because it would be there'd be too many girls outside. And I say, well, how many do you think I can manage? 
<laughs> nice comeback for sure. <laughs> but I love yeah. that idea of the guy you said there's someone, you know, younger on Wikipedia, you know, and is is this you? Does that happen a lot if you're let's say you're sitting next, especially younger, younger people and, and they turn to you and, and if you say Herman's Hermits, do they say what did I, I'm trying to place that. And then you start saying, woke up this morning, feeling fine. And they're like, oh yeah, I know that song. <laughs> yeah, that that's all it is really, isn't it? I mean, the people who, uh, it may be Tourette, Tourette syndrome, but when I was standing next next to Elvis Presley, I, I said, well, since my baby left me, and whenever I meet somebody who's famous, I do a bit of their song. I just can't stop myself. Yeah. Isn't that weird? You yeah. know, I, I, didn't, I didn't sing Sherry, for Frankie Valley, but when I met him, his music was in my head. And I think my music has a face on it. You know, there's, when people hear the music, they see my face. And, 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 it, and if they, so if they hear the music and they want to find out who it is, they will go and there will be now a face on it. Remember, the radio didn't have that. Internet has got a face with everything. So I don't really care if people know me. I, I just want the people who like the music to keep showing up and yeah. and I'll, and as long as I can present it properly with it without a, you know without changing all the keys and all that stuff that people do and having a track as long as I can be live and and fail a couple of times during the show I like I, I think that's important for the audience to realize that it there ain't nothing more real than Herman's Hermit's life <laughs> you know, I sometimes stop songs in, in the middle and say, I can't remember the rest of this song. Let's do something else. You know, I, I like to keep it so that I can fail because that's that's the joy of being in show business, really. You know, go and try new stuff. And I remember once at the Birchmere, I did um, I did Museum, uh, which is a Donovan song uh, that Herman Summits recorded. And uh, none, none of the other guys on stage knew it. So I just played it on the guitar on my own. And, you know, it wasn't great, but it was a very good feeling for me to be able to just deliver a song. And now, you know, I got songs like Listen People that I don't want anybody else to play in. Mrs. Brown, I own it, just a guitar. Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter, it's just a guitar. Nothing, nobody else playing anything. Please, don't play anything. And, um, you know, so you can sell the story of the, of the song. So... It's it's all it's it, it's constantly changing, you know. Not having a set list has kept kept the hermits, um, the modern day hermits, um, uh, consternation and enthusiasm have the same face. They think they know what song I'm going to do next, and, I, and it's never that one because I don't know what song I'm going to do next. You know, there's something about singing the songs and having the audience recognize them that is joyful. And, and what's wrong with that? It's perfect. And I can't think of a better person to come perform, you know, because for 18, 19 months, we've all been living like hermits in a pandemic. And now we get to come out of our, our hermit exactly. lifestyle. There hermit. There's a kind of hush all over the world. It's behind us now. <laughs> exactly. Well, again, everyone, check out Herman's Hermit starring Peter Noon live in concert this Thursday night um, at the Birchmere on Alexandria, Virginia. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. This is a blast talking with you. Hey, likewise. It's good talking to you. Take care of yourself, son. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.
I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.